Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 35. Just want to take a minute and welcome any new listeners to the show, or the, and I would include those that have only listened to a few episodes. Um, maybe you never heard the first episode, and uh, you know you're just saying, "Well, what's the what's the point of this podcast, Life in the Pit?" And just since it's been a while, let me just uh, you know just give you a brief overview of what we talk about here. So the pit is physically a place in a theater, and that theater could be used for. Um, Musical theater, which is our focus here, could also be used for opera or ballet. And uh, it's a spot where you can put the musicians who are accompanying uh, the orchestra. And it tends to be like just in front of and maybe under the stage a little bit. Um, But a lot of the musicians I talk to, they aren't in a theater always, or at least they're not always in a theater that has a real physical pit. Sometimes they're on the stage. Sometimes they're in the lobby. Um... Sometimes they're on a platform above the stage. You never know where these live musicians are going to be. Uh, in theater, though, wherever they are, we call that the pit. And uh, so I like to talk to musicians who have spent time in the pit, whether it's in a real pit or whether it's in the metaphorical pit. And we tend to focus on theater, but we do talk about experiences in opera and ballet. We like to talk to those musicians because it is a certain type of musician and it's a different experience than if you play in a rock band. It's different if you, than if you are solo artists and, uh, and quite a bit different than playing in a symphonic orchestra or a, or a symphonic band. Well, today I'm talking to someone who does have experience in a literal pit. Um, I'm talking today to Mike Lasley. And Mike is a local colleague who has done a lot of work in the city of High Point, North Carolina, And High Point, North Carolina, as I mentioned in this interview, is one of the few places local to my area that has a bona fide theater pit. It has a pit that will lower uh, uh, further down from the stage. It will also raise up to the level of the stage. It's a portable pit. And um, the theater that he works with the most, the High Point Community Theater, does most of their shows there. And when they have a large show that requires live orchestra, they are actually in the pit. Mike is a percussionist by training and through his education. But as he'll mention, it's not even something that he does regularly for performance anymore. He still will play percussion, but uh, he has become more of a keyboardist and much more of a music director. And, And it's just through circumstances in the past decade that have led to that. There's a couple of noteworthy things that we're going to discuss in this interview. Um, One is that we're going to connect it to last week's episode. So I talked to Christina Lauder, percussionist, last week, and uh, we had a story about uh, when she got really sick uh, during a performance of Parade, uh, the Jason Robert Brown musical, and uh, part of that story involved Mike Lasley, so we're going to hear his side of the story for that. Also, Mike is the first person that we've had on board that has been on the board of directors for a theater organization. And he's going to talk about what it's like being on that side of the curtain. And it's something that I think that all pit musicians should pay attention to so that they understand what's going on in that regard. 
without further delay, here is my conversation with Mike Lasley. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, how have things been going for you during this past year or so? Yeah, and I, the past year, it's weird to think that it's been a year. It's It's been better than I would have expected it to be when it all started out. Right. It's certainly been strange, but, you know, yeah. got to be adaptable. <laughs> That's true. Now, uh, you know, in addition to what you do as a performer, uh, you're a teacher. What um, What grades do you teach and what are the subjects? Um, I teach at uh, North Carolina A&T State University. Ah. I'm teaching uh, college kids. Okay. Um, right now, I, I'm an adjunct professor, so I'm teaching music appreciation, uh, music fundamentals course, uh, percussion lessons, and I do a percussion pedagogy course are my main focuses. I've done a little bit different stuff uh, from here and there. I've been there for 13 years, so. Okay. That's become the, like, my standard semester. Let's go ahead and get a picture of what your career has been like in the pit. So uh, I know that you've done music directing. Uh, I know that you've also played percussion. Have you Have you also played keyboard? Oh, yeah. At this, like, I've done, so I've stick conducted, Mm -hmm. I've done keyboard conductor. Um, I've just played keyboard in pits. I've played percussion. I used to play drum set, but I do not do that anymore because it is it is not what I need to be doing. Right. So it, actually, I just uh, looked at my resume the other day, and, and I have now played more shows on keyboard than percussion, ah. which I never really expected to happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had to play on percussion 2019 and that was very unusual for me. <laughs> uh, that was man of La Mancha. There's no keyboard book for that. Just mm. in case you ever get to do that shows. So it, it was one of those, I had to play something and ended up playing percussion on that. Uh, I think I would have done it differently if I could go back and do it. I probably just would have played the bass on the keyboard, but <laughs> uh. so how did you get into music? What, what did you start with? Um, I have kind of a strange musical background. There's no one in my family with any like musical abilities other than my grandmother who was a Baptist church pianist. Mm -hmm. um, and she didn't read music particularly well, except for, you know, she was, she could read like shape music, like shape note music and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was a piano in her house. Uh, I would, pick at it and uh she never taught me anything but she would give me her alfred's piano course books mm -hmm. and i kind of just taught myself to read music taught myself a little bit on piano um i ended up doing a summer enrichment camp where i they offered band in addition to art and writing and poetry and all that stuff so the first band instrument that i picked up was the flute that i played for a summer. And then I did the typical start band in my area. It was fifth grade instead of sixth grade, like it is now. Right. And I was playing drums and I ended up not really liking what I was doing. So my mother put me in piano lessons to replace that because I dropped out of band. Mm. And then, you know, I came back, um, 
because when the band director learned that I could read music and play piano, he saw that then he had a bell player to throw in the band. Mm-hmm. And so I came back, went through that. I, I did music education for my undergrad and taught for one year because I realized quickly that teaching high school and middle school band was not going to last very long for me. So I only did that for a year. Mm-hmm. And then I did my master's and my doctorate in percussion performance. Okay. So it's a bit ironic there. You, so your keyboard is taken over the pit, but you got your degrees in percussion. But yep, that's uh, mu- musically, that's how that works a lot of times. It's like you, there's a lot of crossovers with whatever you choose as far as music education. So, so I just always in, encourage like the music students listening, they don't get too caught up on whether or not you choose the right major. If you're in music, you, you never know. <laughs> you never know what path's going to diverge out of that, what branches are going to open up. Absolutely. I never saw myself being just here in North Carolina. Right. After I finished my DMA, I thought that I was going to run off some someplace else and have a tenure track job. You know, the same thing that that everybody wants to do when they're getting their doctorate in music. But right. yeah, I've modified and worked things out and I'm doing a lot of things that I like to now. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I certainly hear you about that. And there must be something about North Carolina because um, I was just thinking today, um, I've been to two going away parties. In fact, you and I were at one of those parties um, in Burlington for oh, okay. certain, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, for Katie, I believe. Um, and everybody that I've had a going away party for has moved back. <laughs> right. So... You can go away, but you'll, you'll probably come back. So, uh, so what was your first show for theater, and uh, how old were you? And and actually, I guess I should ask it a couple different ways because I've I've seen you on stage before. I've seen you on um, act in um, Guys and Dolls, and I've and I know that you've been on stage for other things. I think you were also in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and I'm sure you've had quite a few other credits. How did you get started in theater? What what perspective was it? Well, when I was a freshman in high school mm-hmm. is when I played my first show. Mm-hmm. Um, I played all of the, we did one musical per year. Right. And the community theater, uh, I would play whenever the, the community theater shows during the summer would move from high school to high school. And whenever it was at my high school, I would play. Right. For the shows. So I did that. I, I wanted to be, I had, when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I wanted to experience more of the arts than just band. Right. But I was not, they wouldn't let me take any of the other courses. So the, we actually had a, like a class piano, class I was not allowed to take that or theater or choir or art mm-hmm. and so the theater director at the time kind of took me under his wing and he brought me in to to play drums in some straight plays as well that he thought could just use something going on I played a little bit of piano then and so I did it I was I was loved doing that it was my one of my favorite things to do during high school was to to play primarily drum set and a little bit of percussion books. Um, but then 
once I went to college, I played a few shows at UNCG and a couple of community theater shows. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't heavily involved until, I guess the the first time that I music directed was kind of an accident. Right. And that was about 10 and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, once it's one of those things, once you start doing it, it's like you just never stop. Right. And I have not. I have not had a break except for during the pandemic. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, you know, one of the things is if you if you're asked to do something, you do a pretty good job. It's not as much de- there's not as much competition as you might think for those jobs, you know, because there's a lot of people, um, and, and I've seen this over my you know in, in the years of some of the shows that I haven't music directed. You'll get some people come in, and they might be like fresh out of college or in college, and you know, um, either they don't sometimes they don't stay all the way to the production, you know, like they just drop out. Um, I, I, it's funny. I've talked to so many people on this podcast who got started by bailing somebody out. <laughs> you know? And uh, if you're, if you're reliable and you just, and you know, you don't even have to be the best at what you're doing. If you just know what you're doing, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. By the way, what, what do you remember what your first show was in high school? Brigadoon. Okay. So when did you get on stage? Oh, that was also an accident. That's only been, I, I want to say five years ago. Okay. Uh, I was, I was music directing into the woods mm-hmm. and my keyboard player for the show was simultaneously music directing the music man. Mm-hmm. And there were all kinds of, issues with casting that she had and like Harold Hill and Marion had to be replaced. Uh, and she didn't have a quartet, mm-hmm. a barbershop quartet. And so she was like, you know, you have been music directing for a few years. I know that you sing when you music direct, would you come in and do the show? And I was like, sure, this show's about to end. I've never done it. That'd be fun. And uh, it it was mortifying. I was terrified right. the entire time singing the, I was singing the tenor part. And then it's like I kept getting added into scenes. And <laughs> it, it was a lot. But I enjoyed it enough to where I started taking voice lessons. And then right. the, it was, that was the summer before I did Guys and Dolls. Right. I've only auditioned for a few shows, but I've been in, I think, seven right. over the past five years. And two of them were lead last-minute lead roles that I had no intention of doing at all. Right. Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I was brought in to do Lawrence Jameson just a few weeks before Tech Week. And mm. then a few months after that... I came into Shrek mm-hmm. to be Shrek right. the day before Tech Week. Wow. So it was it was a, basically a year of just filling in for stuff. And, man, being in a show, right? it's a lot different than music directing a show. <laughs> the part that just gives me so much anxiety, what you just said about, uh, you know, the last-minute replacements of lead characters – 
is learning lines so that, that fast. It's like, I'm, I'm okay with piano music, but lyrics and uh, lines, it's like, I mean, I've done Lady Day at Emerson's uh, Bar and Grill twice, where uh, Billie Holiday has 99% of the lines in the show, and I have 1%, and at most. But both times, it's like I spent so much time learning that, even though I was off-book piano for the whole show, and it's like that, that, that part was no problem. <laughs> but it's just getting those lines and, you know, getting the the right order of the sentences and so forth. So, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely... Uh, I, I feel the anxiety on your behalf <laughs> for that. Now you mentioned you, you did have voice lessons, um, but that's been, you know, kind of in the middle of since between now and the time you started music directing. So I'm always curious when I, when I talk to music directors that come from the instrumental side, how did you kind of pick up enough to work with actors on voices? Is that something that you've kind of just, heard other people do or just kind of what you've experienced in like choral settings or how did you get uh, your vo vocal pedagogy uh, prior to voice lessons? The the first show that I music directed, I was actually co-music directing. Right. And uh, so I was mainly kind of, I was the rehearsal accompanist and I would rehearse stuff all the time. And mm -hmm. I was, kind of in charge of hiring the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so I watched and listened a lot. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, I just had done that so much. I mean, I had to take choral methods and stuff uh, during my undergrad as well. And right. I just, I paid attention. I did research. Uh, I knew I was in... I really liked musical theater, so I had listened to a lot. Mm -hmm. So I had heard what I liked and what I didn't like and different styles of singing and of music. So I just, you know, I applied all of the, the stuff that I normally would teach in percussion and, and changed gears. I would never call myself a voice teacher. Right. But I've done, I've done some coaching outside of music directing as well. And it's... Right. You know, it's just, it's learning on the job, kind of. Right. <laughs> Making sure you're prepared. You've done a lot of work for High Point Community Theater. And, uh, uh, you know, I talked to a few episodes ago um, to Al Stevens about music directing The Wizard of Oz year after year. And, uh, well, High Point Community Theater has started their own annual tradition with a show that has been mentioned in very interesting <laughs> comments multiple times on this podcast. And that is uh, a Christmas Carol. And I don't, uh, I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, what gets presented on stage or played from the pit, but it's maybe the book itself is kind of infamously bad or hard to read. So what, what is, what's been your perspective with uh, from the pits perspective of uh, working on a Christmas Carol? Yeah. Christmas Carol is it says so the, the Alan Menken version of a Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. And I, it was music directing that show was my first experience with High Point Community Theater. Mm -hmm. And um, the first year was just a giant mess that right. turned out a lovely product. Right. Basically, the director left um, right after the second night of auditions. 
So the choreographer and I proposed that we could direct and do our jobs together. And I ended up becoming the director and the music director kind of out of that. And so I probably did not prepare myself Mm -hmm. for the orchestra as much as I should have either. Uh, When it's a huge, it calls for a huge orchestra, like 24, I think is what it, what it calls for giant Mm -hmm. brass sections. I want to say, there's a harp book that doubles keyboard three or four. And mm-hmm. it was just giant it calls for ridiculous instruments too. I believe Did, there's even a bass saxophone part. Do you do the full um, book? No, oh, there's not goodness. We couldn't fit that many people with all, especially with all the, the woodwind doubling. that's oh, in yeah. there. There's no way to fit it right. in that uh, pit. So I think the most we've had for the show is either 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got into the orchestra rehearsal, they were one, it was horrendous manuscript that had been copied and copies of copies. So it was faded in parts. The measure numbers did not line up. Mm. There were cuts that the, the piano book or the, the score had been engraved And so there were all these little symbols of this used to be there, but it's not there. And none of it matched up from part to part. So we spent just several hours in our rehearsal trying to line everything up to what it was supposed to be. And it was, the music was difficult to begin with. It's 90 minutes of just nonstop playing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of a mess. Right. I've tried to, uh, over the past, not, we didn't do it this past year, but uh, we've done it for five years in a row. And I've tried to make things a little bit easier, but in doing that, I've made people's parts a little bit more difficult by giving them some of the stuff that was missing mm-hmm. uh, in the books. But they have re-engraved the parts and fixed them now well nice so it's it's not nearly as bad as it used to be i didn't i wasn't sure that we were going to be able to do it i thought that i was going to just have to say you know orchestra i'm sorry we're just going to have to do this with piano this year it was it was that right now who's the uh who's the publisher of christmas carol for the parts those three mti okay yeah um well, see, no, MTI may not be quite the same. Uh, I know that with Samuel French, because uh, like Theater Alliance and Winston-Salem had done Rocky Horror Show multiple times, and they Samuel French has finally re-engraved Rocky Horror Show and put like in all the ensemble parts, for one thing. Uh, for years, though, those parts were not there. And, you know, basically somebody had to have transcribed them and you had to have that separate from the book but not only that but there were some misprints and you'd have to correct them and then the next time you rent the books you'd have to find them again and make those corrections again so uh, you talked about all the work that went into that first year have you had to also do it year after year i learned my lesson the first year and i actually did a small 
I didn't change anything, but I did a small re-engraving mm. of some of the parts so that they were legible because I just couldn't go through that again. I had extensive notes on what needed to be fixed, which I, I still keep somewhere in my Google Drive of all of the errors that I have found and corrected nice to try to make it just a little bit easier each year right and i try to hire the same orchestra so that they know and so many of them can just play the show right without any problems they can follow actors Mm -hmm. if anything should happen which luckily not much has so right it's it's a good time it's tiring because we do eight shows in one weekend. Right. Nice. Um, so again, this is for uh, the high point community theater. And so that leads into my, my next question. You are the first person that I've had on the podcast that's worked in a pit, but also can offer some perspective of being on the board of directors for a community theater or any other theater group. So, what are some things you can share, like, especially, like, I guess, I guess the way to put that is, you know, for the benefit of those who are in the pit, uh, maybe other music directors, what are some of the things that go on in a board meeting that, that you're able to discuss that affects your perspective uh, as a music director? Yeah. Our board, you know, every board is different. Right. Um, for, for us we don't have an executive director or an artistic director. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any paid positions. So I know that a lot of boards will kind of focus on the financial side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, We are a working board, Mm -hmm. so we do everything um, together. We have, I think, 19 people on our board. And so outside of making the standard business decisions that anyone would have to make, one of the things that we do get a lot of enjoyment out of is of course the, like choosing our shows. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've run into this as a music director as well, but I make sure one of the things that, that as a music director I make sure of is that we pay attention to the musical demands of a piece before we decide to do it Mm -hmm. because you know there will be people who want to do certain shows and i'll pipe in with well you know you have to think about this and this and this and this and this if you're going to do west side story you need to be prepared to pay a good amount of money for an orchestra Mm -hmm. because you're not going to be able to get away with one rehearsal for west side story right and you're going to have to hire more people and and so that has kind of trickled into part of my job as well as I work when I'm not music directing, I work with the music director to hire Mm -hmm. um, orchestras and to make sure that they have whatever they need. Right. I think maybe one of the big things that has come out of being on the board is my realization of what goes into making any of these musicals happen, especially when I go to a different theater company. Right. That I appreciate some of the things that are going on and I have a 
a good bit of understanding when things aren't going as perfectly as people would like. Right. <laughs> it, it has turned me into a kinder person. <laughs> right. Realizing the pain that goes into getting all of these things to happen together. Right. And, you know, it changes from, from board to board so much and from company to company. Like, financially, we don't have a performance space. Right. So we have to rent it out. I mean, you know, because you did Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. and Oklahoma, right? Yes. Yeah. And so most of our big shows are in the High Point Theater. When we do a show there, it costs a minimum of twenty to $25,000 mm-hmm. uh, to put a show up in that space because we we don't have uh, our own space but we don't have a mortgage at this point either so right it, it's kind of a a good thing bad thing works back and forth right but yeah it's it's a lot of work being on a board yeah <laughs> just, just from an audience perspective the uh, i mean i i really like the high point theater i think it's a fun place in this area to see a show uh the one downside and i know it has to do with the fact that You've got this, you know, 900-seat venue that, you know, you're trying to sell out. But, uh, you know, for, for that, and I'm sure other reasons, most High Point shows are one week only. And yeah. it just seems like that's always a week that I'm doing, you know, a show or something like that or, you know, tech rehearsal or something like that. And it's, so it's just very difficult as an audience, you know, f- and working in theater to get over there and enjoy some shows. Um but I know that the both shows that I did um, were with two different directors and the support of the, the board, they turned out, I mean, just really high quality, starting with just really high quality cast. I remember doing Oklahoma and, um, you know, a percussionist, Jim Brandt, he's, he told me one time, like right after one of the shows, said, if you were on Broadway and you paid $150 and and that's the cast you got, you'd be satisfied. <laughs> you know, that was just, it just seems like uh, High Point has always done a, a great job with that. But yeah, it's just, uh, you only get that that one week most of the time, just the way it's set up right now. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I know that, um, I was just remembering, so the one involvement that I had with you when I was music director in High Point for Beauty and the Beast was that I know that the I think the board had decided in 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 advance of me coming on to use the I'm not sure what it's called by MTI is a keyboard essentials or something like that. It was basically their sounds for the keyboard. And I neither I nor the keyboardist had a laptop or iPad or whatever was needed to run <laughs> that software. So I know that you you provided that and were able to set it up to the keyboard. So I'm sure you've yeah, had to do you know, some things like that before. <laughs> yeah, I I have a hate love relationship with the uh, keyboard patch solutions and right. stage and stuff like that. It's a it's a nice tool, but it comes with a giant learning curve. Right. When I started music directing, I would do um, the keyboard programming internally on mm-hmm. on my keyboard. And once I realized how much easier it was to use main stage, mm-hmm. 
I decided that it was time to invest in a Mac. Right. And, and that was the day that I turned into an Apple person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One time when I was looking up Mainstage, I came across a website of somebody who has put together the, the keyboard programs and sounds and patches for dozens of shows. Like, oh, yeah. like a lot of a lot a lot of MTI shows. And basically I think you can pay pay that person two hundred dollars to download the entire file for the show. And it just goes straight to your computer. And and I would think now there are some music directing jobs I've gotten where that really wouldn't be two hundred dollars is a lot. I couldn't really afford that. But if but if you were being paid like the right amount for the show, um that would absolutely be worth it, I think, just for the time. <laughs> oh yeah. That. When when we are when we're researching mm -hmm. uh, shows on the board, that's one of the things that I always make sure to include in the budget. Right. If I look at the the orchestration and feel like it's a super heavy keyboard show, then I will make sure that they put uh, two to five hundred dollars in the budget for the show, just right. for that purposes because it just it helps the music director so much to not have to worry about it right and to just say hey we now have uh, the theater that has bought several laptops and we just have everything set up and ready to go for the music director so that they just have to plug and play right and do their real job <laughs> Yeah, I, I think one of the things we've gotten out of this conversation that I would just share with all the listeners, especially the theater fans out there, if you are connected to your theater board, it, it's also, it's worthwhile to get a music director on your board <laughs> to offer that feedback. Okay, um, I, I was trying to look up. I'm not sure what order the episodes are going, going to be released, um, but I'm about to uh, have a conversation recorded with Christina Louder. Oh yeah, and um, and and and, I, and it's quite possible that in some order you you two will be back to back. So I'm going to ask her about a question about a story that involves you, and I thought I'd get your side of it too. So, 2016 in the fall, uh, Elon University was doing um, Jason Robert Brown's show Parade, and uh, Christina was the percussionist for that, and she was very sick during Act One, and uh, our horn player slash orchestra contractor um kate hopper was desperately trying to find a, someone to come in for intermission and she found you so tell us about that night from your perspective yeah it was a frantic call from kate she was just spewing out words at me and and asking do you know parade and i was like well yes i know parade have you played parade no i have never played parade um how well do you know it i mean uh I, I know I have heard it. <laughs> She's like, are you busy? No, get in your car and drive to Elon right now. Uh, Christina is sick. So I just hopped in my car and flew to Elon while like frantically I pulled up the, the parade album on Spotify and I was just frantically listening to snippets of the the tunes in act two to kind of remind myself and i was like oh man there's some there's some like really exposed drum parts in this and like i said earlier i 
stopped playing drum set a while back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I can handle this. It'll be fine. And so I found somehow found a parking spot that was close to the theater, which is hard to do when there's a show going on. Right. And like knocked on the backstage door. Some actor let me in by chance. And I ran down into the pit and sat there just watching Christina to make sure she was okay and kind of reading along with the with her book just to, to like get the, the idea of what's going on so that I would know if there was anything that I needed to watch out for. Luckily, she was fine and was able to finish out the show, but it was completely nerve-wracking right to just think because i mean elon's shows are of such high caliber i've mm-hmm. listened to the episode that you did with heidi mm-hmm. uh, not long ago and right. uh, i mean it was very intimidating to be down there n- never having seen the music before right to potentially just have to jump onto the drum set and figure things out along the way right <laughs> Well, see, just to break away from the pit for a moment, uh, I know that you've uh, you've kind of uh, put yourself out there with one of your hobbies. You've gotten into you've gotten into art. Is it watercolor painting that you've done? Yeah, mostly mostly yeah. watercolor. Yeah, it's something I've done for years. Uh, not very seriously. I started as a kid. Right. Uh, I was. When my parents got divorced, I was put into art therapy, mm. which I only found out was art therapy like a year ago when I started doing more of this. Right. And um, yeah, I just, I started doing it. It it gave me an outlet since I wasn't able to have any interaction with people really or do much of anything with music. I started playing my marimba a little bit more. That yeah. had been past too. Yeah, I was going to say, I see your remember in your background, and looks like you've got a nice uh, mallet collection to go with it too. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, yeah. toys, percussionists right. like like to buy things. Right. So right. yeah, I like it. Opened an Etsy shop just because I had so much sitting around mm-hmm. uh, that I was like, well, you know, maybe I can pick up a little bit of the income that I've lost over the past year not having gigs or being able to direct or music direct anything. Right. Now has the, uh, the other than, I guess, being online has the pandemic greatly affected um, your, your, the teaching side of things. I got lucky in that the university paid, paid me to develop my music appreciation class into a fully online course hmm. over the summer. Right. And they, and they uh, asked me for the first time since I've been there to teach the class in both summer sessions. So it's been, it's been challenging. I like in the fall semester and I'm guessing the way that this semester is going to be is that my large classes, music appreciation and fundamentals will be fully online, but I will teach percussion ensemble and percussion lessons in person. Okay. Well, good. So this was just, you know, since you've been music director, you've been on the board, you've been on an actor, just thought I'd ask the question this way. 
What's something you always dread before production? You know, there's nothing that I really dread going into something. Right. Um, except for the, like, potential. I always dread the the potential for unnecessary drama mm. that happens so much. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. That's, it doesn't happen all the time and it doesn't happen in every show, mm-hmm. but it happens so often that that personality conflict that arises right. in casts and even sometimes in a pit orchestra. <laughs> right. You know, nothing really other than that. Right. Um, <laughs> Well, what's something that you look forward to the most? As a music director and as an as an actor, getting into the Zitz Probe is probably mm-hmm. my favorite point. As a music director, it's so cool to watch people's faces mm-hmm. when they hear what it's actually going to sound like. Yeah. Instead of just the piano. Right. Especially when I'm accompanying and I am of the school of Fakondo where <laughs> I will totally just play filler stuff if there's not anything specific that's needed for the actor. Right. Um, but yeah, especially when you get casts with young people mm-hmm. and people who have never done a musical with a large live orchestra. Right. It, that And that has been one of my big things as a music director is trying to find a way to have as much of the written orchestration as is possible from a budgetary standpoint and as well as space. Right. Because I know when I did a I did a black box version of Chicago with a group of teenagers years ago and I actually was able to convince the director to hire the full sized orchestration I think minus one book Mm. and they just put us in the back on like one tiny little platform Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a little overwhelming for them but sound volume wise, because right. you know, I had a brass section in a black in a black box. Mm-hmm. But casts just love having that big full experience that's as close to what they've heard in the past as right. can as you can get it to. Right. So, and you know, it's when you don't have that opportunity, you make things work, and they're they're great a lot of the times as well. But. Right. It's one of my big passions is getting a f- nice full pit orchestra right. or a band, depending on the show. <laughs> um, it is it is interesting, you know, working for a variety of theaters, just the different perspectives that you get from the executive and artistic direction regarding the pit. I've had some people say, um, we want this orchestra to sound as good and as full as possible. Tell us what it is. How much money do you need? Um, how much space do you need? And, and in fact, even one person, um, you know, when we were looking at a, at a venue, went ahead and like marked out the space, you know. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then there's the, uh, this is what you get. This is what we have. 
hire whoever you can to fit within those parameters, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just two different, two different perspectives on that. And, um, work with enough theaters, you're, you're going to come across both of those. Um, so what's a memorable horror story from the pit? Okay. So I was music directing a production of legally blonde Mm -hmm. at a high school. Mm. The, amount of rehearsal that we had going in was probably not even half as much as we needed. Mm. The girl who we wanted to play L couldn't because of her grades. Mm. So we had to go to another young lady and it was so frantically put together. Mm -hmm. I was horrified by it. There were only going to be two, two performances I had this tiny little pit of maybe four, five at most. I don't know. And that show's got so much going on in it. Right. And we were, it was one of those giant, super wide high school auditoriums that's kind of shallow. And we were all the way against the wall on one side. Mm. And so many times, the bless the choreographer's heart. She couldn't get them to do anything that she needed them to. Mm. And, you know, it's one of those shows where when there's music, things have to line up with the music and no amount of working with them could get some of the stuff to line up. So through the entire show, I know I was beat red. Mm-hmm. I was playing a keyboard, one of the, one of the keyboard books And it seemed like I was constantly just yelling out measure numbers. Right. Because the kids would jump. I mean, not just, they wouldn't just skip a phrase. They wouldn't do anything even. We're talking, they would just jump 32 measures randomly. Mm. Or just add three extra beats somewhere Mm. in the middle of these (laughs) scenes. And I mean, I would just, I had to stop the orchestra while the kids were just, I don't even think the kids noticed. Mm. They just kept doing what they were doing. And we found a new spot and started. It was, it was horrifying. Wow. (laughs) Apparently we covered well enough to not sound like a disaster, Mm. but uh, man, it was constant fixing of problems on the fly. Right. And, oh, it. And talking about things that get mentioned a lot. I mean, even from, you know, really highly trained professional musicians, Legally Blonde is a tough show. <laughs> it, is, it is one of the shows that, get me- that gets mentioned among the hardest shows that someone's done in the pit. So, yeah, for, I, I can imagine where, <laughs> where that could be potentially bad. Yeah, it, I did get, luckily, I got to um, redo it. Yeah. And I music directed it a couple of years ago in High Point. Right. And it was a lovely experience. <laughs> yes. Yes. I've done that show twice and uh it's been a challenge both times but um but I I do appreciate the time I got to do it in a pit <laughs> and just conduct it. Didn't have to That was a tough show to play and conduct at the same time. So There <laughs> sure is. It's a good time. It keeps you busy. <laughs> yep. Uh we didn't have any brass section that first time, so I I did the brass and the keys, you know. It's just yeah. A lot of fun. <laughs> Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, how fun it is to watch the actors' faces during a Zitz probe, but is there a, a particular moment that stands out in your memory as being a really fond time? 
it's it's probably a it's a, probably a tie for two things. Mm-hmm. Um, two shows that I've music directed. Uh, one we've already talked about, a Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, it has been like growing a family mm-hmm. through that show because so many of the same people have done it from year after year. I'm super tight with some of the people who have played in the pit and some of the people who have acted in the show and worked backstage. It's a, it's, it's like, even though I'm not from high point and don't live there, it's my high point family is kind of exists within that show. Right. Um, and I mean, it's Christmas Carol. It it makes you feel good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then just right before, everything shut down last year. I had just finished directing and music directing cabaret. Mm -hmm. And I had the best time Mm -hmm. with that show. Right. I, that was kind of when I started drawing again as well. I drew the costumes Mm -hmm and gave them to the costumers and they interpreted what I had drawn. Um, I designed the set and the set builders put it together for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, The band was on stage, which is one of the things that I absolutely love doing. Right. Um, And it just, I mean, cabaret, it's, it's probably my favorite show Mm. that I know. And it, it just, it was a really, really great experience. It was one of those shows that did not have a lot of that unnecessary drama that I hate so right. much. And the drama that we did have, we just nipped in the bud and uh, didn't have to deal with it anymore. But yeah, it was, it was such a beautiful experience. And from, at least from where I was sitting, it was a beautiful show with some super talented people. Right. Because, you know, cabaret people are going to come audition for it so it it was i had such a great amount of choices for the actors in that show and and i just i absolutely loved it it's right and if i recall the the musicians didn't have to to wear their traditional black but they actually dressed in character yes (laughs) everyone was was in full makeup and costume for that nice (laughs) they all provided their own costumes so they had a little bit of fun with it nice um, so I know, you know, there's a lot of things going on with theater that's non-traditional. Um, uh, in fact, like just this weekend as we're, as we're recording, I'll be at Elon, um, uh, playing keyboard two for their next project. That's going to be recorded in advance and all that. Um, nice. do you have any, any projects going on right now while we're waiting for live theater? No, all the things that I had lined up have been rescheduled Mm. now. Um, Actually, the the last thing that I had on the books, which was going to be a show in May, just got canceled Mm. or rescheduled, I suppose. Right. Uh, So, yeah, that's uh, one, two, three, four, four or five shows Mm. that have been moved around a little bit. I, so yeah, I'm just kind of waiting. Uh, we're on the board since we're not doing anything. We're using this time to get some like general housekeeping stuff done, uh, administratively and physically with our rehearsal space and stuff like that. And, uh, 
Right. Just, you know, I, I also have another job. I work for a music publishing company hmm. part time. So I'm doing that from home. Okay. And then I'll start teaching and just keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully the performance of venues will start opening up by the end of the year. I know it's largely contingent on uh, if the vaccination schedule can speed up from where it is right now. But um, I know that Broadway is hoping for a fall return. And so, you know, if they, if they do, you know, it's the larger theaters that can't open. It's the smaller theaters can, you know, they can get by with a few things. So maybe that'll trickle down and, you know, we can get back, get back together. So, um, is there any place that, uh, you'd like to share where people can follow you or any of your organizations? I am on Facebook and Instagram, uh, they're both Mike Lastly, L A S L E Y, and yeah, that's. I don't have a website or anything anymore. I okay, just, it wasn't worth keeping up. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for sharing your stories. Thank you, David. I've enjoyed chatting with you today. And that's it for this episode. And I just want to remind everybody, please, if you get value from this podcast, from this episode or any of the episodes, please share it with your friends. Share it with those that you think would be interested with this or any of the other episodes in the series. And also, please take a moment, and especially if you have access to Apple Podcasts, and just, uh, if you would, please give us a five-star review, uh, even if it's just a rating, but if you want to add a review to that. It's just little things in the algorithms that will allow Apple or Google or whatever to show our podcast to new listeners. Okay, next week on episode 36, that'll be February 12th that that comes out. Um, I have the third percussionist in a row that I'm going to have on this show, and uh, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, him playing percussion. But right now, more than a week away, I couldn't tell you how long that episode is going to be uh, because he has played percussion for multiple national tours uh, as a traveling percussionist. He's also done everything, just about everything I can think of um, in theater. He, he is a equity stage manager. He has done uh, choreography. He has done... Uh, acting there there's so much that and we talk a little about a little bit of it but of course we're going to talk about the national tours and all the things that he's done for theater and his story of how he got into all of these various ways of playing this is a very interesting episode it's uh, i haven't had a lot of new york uh pit musicians on the show so i'm very pleased to uh to bring him on next week so that's going to be episode number 36 Friday, February 12th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me personally on Facebook at David Lane Music or on Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, I want to give a special thanks to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. If you'd like to reach out and leave a message or a comment or find out more about this podcast, you can do so at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. 
please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you.